0: Let's start in Luke chapter 17, where the Lord Jesus tells us about the times of the, the days of the Son of Man. Luke chapter 17, verse, verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, and they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. The surprising thing about this account of the times of Noah is what the Lord points to. He gives us an insight that we wouldn't have got from reading Genesis chapter 6. If we read Genesis chapter 6, we'll see that the, the end of that era, the end of that epoch was characterized by violence and corruption. The end of all flesh has come before me, says the Lord, because violence had filled the earth. They had corrupted the way of the Lord upon the earth. That's not what the Lord Jesus refers to. He says that in a way, life carried on. You see, that era uh, and when it ended, it wasn't totally chaotic. It wasn't anarchy. There there was some order to life. Uh, They carried on with the daily things of eating and drinking and marrying and so on. And that's quite interesting because sometimes we think about the end of an age. We think it collapses completely. It falls apart. There's no order, people are fighting each other to the death, as it were, but that's, that's not the picture the Lord Jesus Christ points to. When we put together what we know about the times of Noah, there are a few salient points we want to draw attention to. One is in 1 Peter chapter three and verse 20. 1 Peter chapter three, verse 20, which uh, the inspired apostle tells us is to do with the times of Noah says, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. The wickedness of that world had reached its culmination. Its end had come. But the flood didn't come for 120 years. And certainly while Noah was preaching, while the ark was building, that wickedness, as it were, was already... In its fullness, the the world was spread clean of it, but nevertheless, God's long suffering was waiting, and waiting, and waiting. And what were people doing? What was the mood of society in regard to the witness of Noah? Well, we're told in Jude, uh, in Jude chapter 15, about the witness of Enoch. And we're told in verse 15 of Jude that judgment was coming. God was going to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you notice that? The, The mood of the world was a mood of defiance against God. So there was a responsibility that the world had. They would be accountable for the way in which they were speaking against God. So those things go together. A fullness of wickedness, shall we say. God's long-suffering, and yet a spirit within the world of defiance against God. The Lord says of the coming of the Son of Man, he says in Luke 17, likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. And the point is there again that in a sense life carried on. Uh, commerce carried on, agriculture carried on, industry carried on. It wasn't chaotic. It wasn't society hadn't fallen apart. It was filled with corruption. They had committed terrible abominations, but God's long suffering was waiting. Uh, and, and that's what Abram was pleading for. Will you destroy it if there are 50 righteous? How about 40? 10? See, the long suffering of God was indeed waiting because there weren't even 10, just righteous lot. But God knew how to extract him from that. So what we get for these, uh, these epochs, these eras of wickedness coming to an end, though the long-suffering of God is waiting, is some insight into the spirit of the age at that time. So draw your attention to Ezekiel chapter 16, Because this is a prophecy concerning the end of another era, the end of the, the kingdom of Judah, they reached the point of no return. The iniquities of Manasseh had so developed into society that even the great reforms of Josiah could change the spirit which was at work in that society. And Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And we're not told that in the Genesis record. This is an extra insight that we are given, as the Lord Jesus had given us this extra insight. They were industrious, they built it, they planted, they were wealthy. And in that idleness, their time on their hands. And human nature is such, and the imagination of the heart of man is such that the consequence is this abomination that they committed before. Also, going with that uh, that idleness and iniquity is the total neglect of compassion for the poor and needy. That was the world in which Lot was living, and that was the world which was judged. So, Scripture gives us these ways of looking at world history. We look back now at world history, and we see these epochs, which are characterised by few words, but which give us an insight into the spirit of the age. Well, that idea of the spirit of the age is one which is very pertinent to what we want to think about in this session. I want you to turn to Ephesians and chapter 2 to see... How that uh, that German word has come into use in in the English language as well, accurately captures the concept of Ephesians chapter 2. So, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, when in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince. Of the power of the air the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience the spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience and the words like guys the spirit of the age captures two key words in this the uh, the course of this age the course of this age and the spirit that now worketh in the children of sinners. Hard to define the spirit of the age. You know, what, what are you talking about? It's not a political thing. It's not a military thing. It's not a, um, well, what is it? It's, it's a sociocultural thing. It's in the air. Well, we, of course, have a, a unique way of thinking about that. I've turned mine off. Um, the spirit of the age, the spirit of the internet age, has speeded up all these cultural and social trends in society. And it's a terribly wicked age, and sisters. I mean, it's so wicked. You ca- I can't talk about it. I can't, I can't say what is going on. What children need to be protected from. Uh, it, it's, in, it's, it's an evil that you, I said beyond imagination. It's not beyond the imagination of humankind because it is the product, the creation of the imagination of humankind. But it is altogether appalling. And in our government in Britain, there is a bill going pro- through Parliament uh, about the online safety bill. And if you do read the news and listen to, they're trying to protect our children from you realize just how dreadful it is the statistics are are mind-boggling the exposure of little ones it's too awful now that safety bill has not been passed yet it has not been passed They're talking about protecting the children, but they're not protecting the children. Children throughout the world are being polluted to a point of no return with the wickedness and corruption of a world of Sodom and a world of the days of Noah. It it is a sign so awful one couldn't have invented it, could we? Unless we had seen the evidence. Now that's the... Talking about the spirit. How is it possible? How is it possible for ideas and thoughts and behaviors to be so developed and trends so fast accepted across the world? Well, the technology has allowed it. In, in ages gone by, it was a slower process. But now, when you think about the world of Noah, right, where they were challenging The word of God. And you think about the age in which we live. Genesis 1 to 3. Has systematically been cancelled by the spirit of the age. The Bible is God breathed. No it's not. It's a cultural artefact of past eras. In the beginning God. No. Nothing in the beginning. I don't know how to cope with that, but but they cancel God. Man and woman made in the image of God. Now just an animal, just an evolved creature. In fact, as society goes on and the thoughts of philosophy develop, man is no better than the animals. Man has no right to live more than the animals. In fact, the animals have more right to exist than man. You actually, actually hear such thoughts in the media, male and female, well, you choose. (coughs) Marriage, contrary to nature, life God-given, abortion on demand. An unborn child has no rights, right up until the time of birth, it has no rights. That's the world we're living in. In a world which is essentially good, not plagued by the law of sin and death. What an extraordinary thing. Are we only wonder to think that this is the world that needs to be brought to an end. The spirit of the age. The power of the air. Look at that phrase in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2. The power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. And just think about that when you look at Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the <laughs> air. Into the air. What will be judged of this world, brothers and sisters and young people? The spirit of the age, the prince of the power of the air, the cultural wickedness, which is unsurpassed in human history, will be judged. And with all the, the organisations and systems which allow that to flourish. Could it get even worse? Well, I I don't know. I don't know. The long-suffering of God is waiting in these days. So, what we want to do now is to look at the age, the epoch that Scripture describes for us, which is our epoch in Revelation chapter 16, and... We see there from verse 12 to verse 16 of Revelation chapter 16, the epoch in which we live. And we're given very little information. Obviously, what we are given is, is vital in understanding the spirit of the age in which we live. In fact, the three spirits of the age in which we live. And it starts off with the drying up of the great river Euphrates. We don't need to go into great detail. The the river represents the power, the the, the government uh, on its banks. The great river Euphrates, in this time in, in world history, is the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was a huge empire. The outer boundaries of the colored section is the greatest extent of the Ottoman Empire. But gradually, The Ottomans lost their power, and Brother Thomas was writing, it was just the very early days of the shrinkage of the Ottoman Empire. All he could see was the drying up of the Greek uh, part, 1829, and he thought that was a sign sufficient for the the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we've seen now the dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire, and of course in the Great War, 1914-18 war, the Ottomans pushed out at the end of the empire came in that period. And what Revelation 16 tells us is that the drying up of the great river Euphrates opened a way, opened up the Middle East for development. We see ultimately the kings of the sun rising, coming to establish the kingdom of God. But before then, a lot of things had to squeeze into that space, that the that the drying up of the river Euphrates accomplished. Well, the next thing we're told in verse 13, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of demons working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So what is a spirit? Well we're told in 1 John chapter 4 verse 1 to try the spirits. Spirits are teachings, spirits are concepts, spirits are ideas that get into people's heads. They may be uh, driving us uh, you know mad uh, by the occupation of our minds by these thoughts. And I think the word that captures What these spirits are is the word ideology. They are ideologies that go out into the world to gather the nations together to Armageddon. Well, what might they be, and why are they frog-like? Well, the Greek, uh, the drying up of the the river Euphrates was a geopolitical event. And what I believe is that the frog-like spirits are sociocultural forces, right? They're forces in society, they are ideas and concepts which capture the minds of people and lead them in a certain way. How they lead to gathering together in Armageddon is, is a point that we we'll have to come to. But of course we go back to Exodus to find out about the frogs in scripture and uh, workers... Uh, been presented at Bible schools. Brother Don's uh, Milestones in 2019 has got a very nice summary page of the relation of the frog-like spirits to to Exodus because, you know, these frogs, they came out of the dried-up river mud. They got everywhere. They got into king's chambers. They were completely uh, indifferent to class and position in society. They were no respecters of status. I just to give you an extra point to think about. See, we know that the we know that the plagues of Egypt were targeted against the gods of Egypt. We, we know that's not a new concept. We know that you know they worshipped the Nile, they worshipped this and that, they worshipped beetles, insects, they worshipped cattle, the, uh, Hathor, you know, the, the the sacred cows of heaven. They worshipped the the pharaoh as the embodiment of the gods, the firstborn and so on. So God didn't just attack them, uh, as it were, willy-nilly. He he targeted their false religion. The frogs were worshipped as a symbol of the goddess Hecate. And Hecate, she's represented in these uh, carvings by a a woman with a, a frog's head. And you see pictures of frogs, apparently used to embalm the frogs as well. Well, what was she? It's very, very interesting. You know, in, in Exodus chapter 1, when Pharaoh's worried about the, uh, the birth rate of the Hebrew women, he commands the midwives you know, to get rid of the male children. Well, Hecate was the Egyptian goddess of midwives, Midwives were priestesses of Hecate She was was the the goddess, so they believed That that had control of flourishing, of birth Even of resurrection And so they worshipped her So that they could get new life The promise of life The promise of new generations The promise of life from the dead (coughs) But what happened to the frogs? They were killed and they stank and they corrupted the land. Psalm 78, verse 45 tells us they corrupted. So this is a false promise of life. The false promise of flourishing. Society speaks about how the world is going to make a better place. These ideas, these spirits are out in the world to try to Bring the world to a better place. But it's a false hope. It cannot work. The goals of the United Nations cannot be achieved. Because human nature is corrupt in itself. And human governments will inevitably fall under the power of that human nature. So it's an interesting thing to bring to, to see this. So what I think... I suggest that the frog-like spirit... i don't come on to the French link in a while... ...but I'll just focus, if you like, on a scriptural point from Exodus. Um, what the frog-like spirit is speaking about is... Uh, ...forces which come out of the earth. Right? They come from the soil. They are, as it were, movements which come up from below. From the base level of humanity... They're the opposite of revelation from God. They're concepts which come up from below, which get everywhere, are no respecters of status, which promise life and fruitfulness, but end with death and corruption. That, I think, is what these spirits are essentially. Now, how do they gather the nations? To Armageddon. And, and that's not a simple question. And if it's the frog-like spirits which are gathering the nations. How do we fit together other prophecies that we know quite well don't we? Ezekiel 38. "After come to take a spoil? The invasion of the Middle East seems to be precipitated by a thought in Gog's mind to take a spoil. What's that got to do with frog-like spirits? In Zechariah chapter 12. The nations gather against Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the burdensome stone. There's something really about Jerusalem which is going to precipitate this great crisis. What's that going to do with the frog-like spirits? That's what I've been trying to, to puzzle uh, and think about because they have to come together. They have to, in some way, come together. So that's what this slide is trying to, to do. So let's take it in turn now. It's a big picture stuff. First of all, we are going to stand before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that, don't we? And I think it's pretty clear to me that that's going to be before Armageddon. And the reason for that, of course, is that Christ and his saints, the one body, the glorified one body, come to Jerusalem to deliver the remnant. Of Israel from destruction. Right? And Zechariah chapter forty Tells us. The speech will stand upon the Mount of Olives. And all the saints with him. So you've got to think that the call to judgment. May be quite a time. Before these other things. Fall into place. So it's worth thinking about that. It's not just. Oh, yeah, But that may be the case. It may be years. Before those other things take place. I just want to quote to you from uh, Eureka. Brother Thomas uh, wrote about this. You may not be familiar, so familiar perhaps with uh, this part of, of it, but I think it's worth certainly worth thinking about. And Brother Thomas talks in Volume 3. This is page 198 of, of this book. Here then is a manifest interval of time and space between Timan and the Mount of Olives. Right? Okay, see that? Between Timan, the judgment seat of Christ and the Mount of Olives. How long, he can't say. But what he does say is that will there must be enough time for the development of all those other things to take place. Including, as far as he's concerned, the return of Jews to the land. There wasn't even Jewish population then. Never mind peace and security. And prosperity. So he saw there was a period of time. So it's not a new idea. It's an idea, I think, which is, is a valuable idea. And then we have judgments which are divided up into two parts. So have a look at chapter 14 of Revelation. And again... Perhaps for, for younger ones to, to take note of this. I think it's very helpful. I found this chapter very helpful in terms of the broad picture, the broad framework of what's happening. So if you look in Revelation chapter 14, you see there are two parts to the harvest. Verse 15 says, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So there's a harvest of the grain, the grain harvest, which we would associate with people's sheaves in the valley for judgment, right? We'd associate that with the word Armageddon, the destruction of the Gogi Confederacy on the mountains of Israel. But there's a second part to it, verse 18. Thrust in thy sickle and gather the cluster of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully come. The grape harvest came some months after the grain harvest in the calendar cycle of Israel. So we're talking not about Armageddon as one event, but of a series of events which capture the full judgments of God. And you can see in Revelation chapter 16 those two elements. If you go back to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 17, we're told that when the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. It is done. Now that's a quotation from Ezekiel 39 verse 8. It is come, it is done. Right. So uh, Ezekiel 39 comes into verse 17 there. That's the first harvest. The grain harvest. Then the second harvest Part the, the grape harvest verse 19 of Revelation chapter 16 and the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon came into remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath so that's the second part okay so can you see how those things fit, fit together now, uh, what I think is helpful, again, is a point that uh, I'd noticed, and I found Brother Thomas had noticed it, you know, a, a lot earlier, and that is when you go to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 14 about these unclean spirits, it says, And they are the spirits of demons working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them. So the spirits gather the nations, at least they go out to the world, the nations of the world, to gather them together. But in verse 16, in the King James Version, it says, And he gathered them. It's he, singular, because the Greek is singular. Most modern versions put it in the plural, because they don't understand how it could be singular. And they assume that it's they, the unclean spirits, which... Actually are referred to in verse 16. But I don't think it is. This is the sixth angel who gathers them together. And Brother Thomas makes a distinction, I think he's absolutely right, that the frog-like spirits go out and prepare the situation, as he says. The unclean demons-like frogs having prepared the situation, then he says. Who is it, then, that gathers them to Armageddon? Now, what precipitates Armageddon is a different question from what has prepared the nations for that eventuality. That, that, that I think, is, to me, that's helpful. So what is it that precipitates Armageddon? Now, I don't know if you know this, but... uh, Brother Thomas uh, says on page 197 and, and later that the miracle in the desert prepares or precipitates Armageddon. You see, because the judgment seat has already taken place, because the Christ body has been put together as an entity and as a power in the earth, unknown to the nations, certain remarkable events are taking place. And he takes the prophecies of Isaiah, where waters will spring up in the desert, and the desert will flourish as actual literal prophecies of a miracle in the desert. And it is that event, and related events, including the Elijah Mission, we might think, which provoked the nations into invading the Middle East. And he sees Russia as heading up, as it were, a coalition of the willing to stop what's going on. Because this new government has emerged in the Middle East, abolishing old religions, preventing pilgrimages, and commanding the world to get back to bible basics now you can read that uh at, at your leisure but i think it's very interesting to see now uh, brother graham pierce's excellent writings on this subject uh, i've developed that even further so again it's something to if you haven't read those booklets i think it's certainly worth reading and of course the the milestone says picks up and uh, takes that forward but you can see just in, in this situation, you see, they will doubtless hear of its making great demonstrations in the East and of the setting up of a new religion in its principles and in, uh, institutions, intolerant and subversive of other faiths. Well, yeah, that's quite interesting. So did you see the, 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 the two concepts, right? The unclean spirits are preparing the world to be eminently hostile to what the Lord Jesus and the saints are going to establish. There's going to be an intense antagonism between the two forces. I put in there a picture of a Saudi Arabian uh, ambition. And I like It's quite, quite relevant. Uh, they have uh, an ambition. It's going to cost, so they say, 500 billion to build a city in the desert. An eco-city with lakes in the desert. Do you know where this city is? Just opposite from Sinai. You can imagine that. Just across the Red Sea. Right near Timon. Now, whether they'll succeed, I'm not sure they'll succeed. But what a remarkable thing. That what the Bible says is going to happen there, is being planned by Saudi Arabia now. In fact, people have been recruited. They're building it. People have been headhunted to go and work in Saudi Arabia to develop this city. It's in a place called Neon. uh, And it's a project which I think will come to nothing. But when the Lord Jesus, the Christ's body, accomplish what Saudi Arabia want to do but can't, the world will be amazed. I think there'll be sufficient chaos in the world. ...to mean that the Lord's work can be done in secret... ...but that's another question... ...but look, that's an interesting development, isn't it? So let's look now then... ...at how those unclean spirits prepare the nations... ...they're gathering them... ...by the way which the ideologies... ...are going out into the world... and, ...and creating a mindset... ...which will be triggered... ...ultimately by the work of Christ and the saints. This is where we want to compare Revelation 11 and Revelation 16, and and the two go together. So, Revelation 11, verse 15, of course this is the ultimate goal, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, but just look down at Revelation 11, verse 19, and you can see there the lightnings, the voices, the thunderings, the earthquakes and the hail. Those are the very things that Revelation 16 says, verse 17 onwards, talk about. So the two passages seem to be in parallel, don't they? Revelation 11, verses 18 and 19, corresponds, I believe, with the work of the unclean spirits in preparing the world. And there you've got, in verse 18, the nations were angry. The nations were angry. And that's a quotation from Psalm 46, related to Psalm 2, but Psalm 46, I think, is the passage in particular. The nations were angry, the heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. Now, what what is being described there? Well, the word raged in verse 6 is the same as the roar in verse 3. The waters thereof roar. The Lord Jesus, Luke 21, the sea and the waves roaring, the rage of the nations and the peoples are stirred up like the raging sea. You may know we live near the sea and we see a lot of raging sea uh, and it can be very dangerous and the tides are enormous and when you get uh, currents clashing you get this boiling water and if you're in a boat you wouldn't be wanting to be there. When you look at the, the raging sea, it's very difficult to see any trend. You know, you've watched the sea for two minutes and you not know whether the tide's coming in or going out. It's in the nature of waves. <laughs> you've got to spend a longer time to see if it's coming in or going out. And the picture here is the peoples of the world in turmoil, raging currents of ideology. Sometimes they middle the eddies going nowhere and fizzling out. But there are major forces at work, and we don't want to caught up in the, in the day-to-day headlines to see, well, maybe that's it, or maybe... The sea and the waves are boring. But there are these trends which have gone out into the world. And to, to give you a, a, an idea from Genesis chapter 11... About these trends Because this is where nations were created You'll see there In Genesis chapter 11 Verse 3 Where the idea of a worldwide empire A humanist worldwide empire Came from United people Of the world And a one religion One civilization One society Living together in harmony Where did that idea come from? You look at verse 3. And one said to his neighbour. It wasn't an idea which was imposed. It wasn't a great leader came along and said, this is what we need to do. It's described as coming up from the grassroots. One said to another. This is how the idea idea percolated. And I think that's fitting perfectly with the unclean spirit. And if that spirit is allowed, nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Online safety bill. Nothing will be restrained. Imagine now if God hadn't divided the languages, what a world would have been like united by one language, English, on the internet. How quickly would that society have become so corrupted it would have been swept away? but it is happening now and it was the nation states in competition with each other it was the development of culture from language and tradition from culture which people want to protect Ukraine Russia, across the world, which prevents the overarching empire being created of course you can think of that as the the, Ostrich, because God's purpose is in one, but not on the basis of humanism, not on the basis of ideas coming up from the grassroots, but from the word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. God says, my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine an indignation, and then will I turn to the people of pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord. So let's just go back now to Revelation chapter 11 and look at the French connection to this uh, remarkable prophecy. So in Revelation chapter 11, France we can identify with some certainty in verse 13 of chapter 11, that in the history, Historicist view of Revelation, I think, is the only viable uh, possibility. The tenth part of the city suggests a tenth, one of the ten horn kingdoms that falls in a great earthquake. There's no other uh, option than France. Uh, And what is really uh, intriguing to see is that the identification of the fall of France in a political earthquake was anticipated a hundred years before it actually happened, almost to the day By Bible students, this is the the accomplishment of the prophecies of the approaching deliverance of the church, says Peter Jureux, English translation of his book, 1687. The tenth part of the city which here fell will at some future time appear to be the kingdom of France where a revolution will take place about the year 1785. Well, he was a few years out. what an amazing thing studying Bible prophecy he says look that's going to be France this is where the witnesses are this is where they've been treated the worst this is the epicenter of the whole affair uh, and this is what's going to happen to France and he was absolutely right so that's a French basis in Bible prophecy and the French Revolution brought about those changes that we are anticipating. This is a, a quote from, I uh, 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 like brief histories, don't you? you know? <laughs> a brief history. And what he says is, the, culturally the French Revolution provided the world with its first meaningful experience with political ideology, the secular equivalent of theology. And it was the unleashing of the power of the people uh, that which arises up from the earth, the power of democracy and the way in which it evolved into socialism and nationalism. The releasing of the power of the people, one saying to his neighbor, come, let's go and do this. Uh, before that time, the Catholic Church and the emperor uh, commanded the people... There was no will of the people to be considered. There was the will of the the church. There was the will of the emperor. And of course, terrible abuses and terrible persecution of the true believers occurred at that time. And many others as well. And so they threw off those constraints. Probably with the best of intentions. And this gave rise to the birth of nations. It was called, 1848 by the way, it was called the springtime of nations. Nations are a relatively new thing. Even though they were created in Genesis chapter 10, they weren't sort of universal, they they weren't everywhere. They were great empires, and peoples were in subjugation to those empires. This is what uh, Brother Barker and Bolton say in the Apocalypse in History about the influence of the French Revolution. Thus the work of the frogs has resulted in the formation of nations, large and small, consequent on the influence of liberty and nationality born of the French Revolution out of the democracy or the earth. These two influences which should have made for peace and goodwill have by a strange twist produced the reverse. They were full of good intentions, but they produced the worst. And you have to go back a bit to understand the, uh, the thinking, the philosophy that lay behind these events. The spirit of the age doesn't just sort of come out of nowhere. It is the product of the thoughts of intellectuals who then spread that through teaching uh, and so on. And Rousseau is, is a name which comes up when you read about this. Rousseau as, as a name... Why was he so fundamentally important? First of all, he believed man is naturally good. That he could trust his instincts, he could trust his heart, he could trust his inner feelings, more so than he could trust his reason. Rousseau believed that his feelings were the source of morality. If it feels good, then it is good. That's 200 years ago. Plus, right but you recognize that concept now it's been unleashed it's taken a while to percolate through and he talked about the general will of the people the will of the people the sinister part about that is that Robespierre was a great admirer of, of Rousseau and he took the general will of the people to be the rule of the mob and what Rousseau was advocating is the people didn't conform to the will of the people should be made to conform to the will of the people. Hence so what they did in the French Revolution in its third stage is cut off an awful lot of heads. All right. And that's the sinister aspect, This, which was intended for good, ends up causing death. <coughs> the whole thing is summarised, the French Revolution sort so fizzled out. And there was another French Revolution and a third French Revolution. And by 1848, when Brother Thomas was uh, writing El Israel*. everything was kicking off in Europe. Uh, And uh, it was an amazing time for him to be writing the book. And the the printer Saurieux, he produced this famous picture, The Dream of Worldwide Democratic and Social Republics. And what he sees is a, a stream of peoples, forming themselves into nation-states, all living in harmony. And they're coming past the Statue of Liberty. Because America, of course, has already anticipated the development of of an independent state based on liberty. And the Statue of Liberty is holding the torch of liberty, but in her other hand, she's uh, holding the the rights of man and the citizen, the Declaration of Human Rights, which the French Revolution crafted. And these nations, France has already gone past. Germany is about to come, and then Italy. And they're going to work and live together in harmony. This is the great ideal picture. What followed is the sea and the waves roaring. And war after war. It's like an announcement, I'd like to have the time from the announcements to, to go through this. But basically, the French Revolution... Unleash some forces, right? In, in Britain and America, the Enlightenment went down the individualistic route. The individual is king. Liberalism is the philosophy. Capitalism is the practice. In what's called continental philosophy, there was a rebellion against this. Rousseau's influence that feelings are important, that you know, what you feel... So Trump's What You Can Think developed another strand, not now of individualism, but of collectivism, ultimately of socialism. And that burst out into two terrible forms of philosophy, communism and fascism. And the two go together, and it's surprising, you might think. But the French Revolution gave rise to modern ideologies based on the concept of the power of the people. Communism was international. And Russia, the mouth of the dragon, was the the instigator of that political ideology, which, of course, has gone out to countries across the world, South Africa at the moment, under the influence of, of that philosophy. But Hitler actually, did you know this? That he said basically, National Socialism and Marxism are the same. Instead of it being international, it's based on the Darwinist idea that some are superior to others. Without race, National Socialism would really do nothing more than compete with Marxism on its own ground. So, out of the mouth of the beast, the philosophy of the french revolution in its grotesque form also spread out of course fascism and communism have shaped the world in the wars Uh, you think of uh, south america you think of asia these have gone out across the whole world what about the mouth of the false prophet then well the spirit of the french revolution you might have thought was deadly to the catholic church and it was in terms of their possessions in France and so on. But there was a, a response in 1891. The Pope produced Rerum Navara, an encyclical on the social uh, teaching of the Catholic Church. A body of doctrine or law, politics and economics developed by popes since the late 19th century and was very influential in Europe and Latin America. After the Second World War, Western Europe, the Christian Democratic Parties had a huge impact on governments. The socio-economic policies of these parties were anchored in Catholic social teaching. So the modern world has been shaped not just by uh, those political forces, but also by the religious adoption of those forces. And in 2021, the Pope produced another document, Fratelli Tutti, all our brothers. See, one of the things that's sort of lacking from the history before that is the fraternity aspect liberty and equality were out there but how do you get fraternity how do you get people to live together in harmony these forces are fighting each other and i think the catholic church thinks that it's going to fill the void it's going to be the fraternal spirit that gathers these nations together and he says Fraternity is born not only of a climate of respect for individual liberties or even of a certain administrative guaranteed equality. Fraternity necessarily calls for something greater the fraternity of it. Now, as these things developed, of course, the ambition for the world to be one in harmony, but nation-states fighting each other, you get the League of Nations, and this allowed... This allowed uh, uh, the the development of the League of Nations and then then the United Nations. And the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights is based on the French Revolution. So, you know, we're not making these things up, right? The era, the epoch that Revelation 16 describes for us is the epoch of the spirits of the French Revolution shaping the world.
1: An ambition
0: for harmony and fraternity, but the reality is war and strife. The Article 1 of the United Nations, to maintain international peace and security, look at the language of Article 2, to develop friendly relations among nations based on the respect of the principles of equal rights. The United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 1. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They endowed with reason and conscience which react towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. All the elements are there in the world in which we live. It's a world shaped by the unleashing of the forces of that French Revolution. The three unclean spirits have gone out of the mouths of these forces. As it worked, here are the new nations created since the... uh, the United Nations, Nations, right? Look what's happened. These are the current wars. Right? They're the same nations, right? The sea and the waves are roaring. But what it has allowed is the creation of Israel. Into the drying up of the river Euphrates, the move for nationalism, for freedom, for independence has allowed the creation of the State of Israel but it's also wakened the desire of the Palestinians for their state. And the United Nations has become the place where this comes to a focus. How does Jerusalem fit into this? How does civil rights, how do freedoms bring nations to Jerusalem to battle? Uh, just look at the United Nations. This last year, 2022 the United Nations General Assembly passed 15 resolutions against Israel and 13 against the whole rest of the world. Israel, 15, rest of the world, 30. Equality is okay except for Jews. Liberty is okay except for Israel. And the question is why? Look at, from 2015 through 2022, the UN General Assembly has adopted 140 resolutions on Israel and 68 other countries. Now, that is an amazing sign. Isn't that an amazing sign? That the organization which has created Israel now sets up Israel as a target for the nations of the world. It's astonishing. Why, why, why do people hate the Jews so much? Well, these are some of the headlines I've gathered. The left's Jew hate, sown in the French Revolution. Socialism hates the Jews because they are different. They say they're different. They say they're separate. They say they have a separate identity. They will not be assimilated. They will not join the common will. Fascism hates hates the Jews because they are in fear. The Catholics hated the Jews because they were blamed for theist. The uniqueness, the sign of the uniqueness of the Jews is now becoming so prominent that it is dominating the world's general general assembly. I mean, come on, this is the most amazing big picture stuff, isn't it? We're living in danger. And it's human rights which is going to cause the problem. Human rights, how's that? The Universal Declaration of Human Rights. UN experts say Israel should be held accountable for acts of domicile. Special rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the occupied Palestinian territories. Israel has imposed upon Palestine an apartheid reality. Israel has now been held to account for its uh, human rights. That's in a world where human rights are trampled upon in the most terrible way. But the United Nations doesn't speak about it. Just against Israel. That's how the spirits are gathering the nations together. To Armageddon. What an amazing thing. Now, I just want... I can have uh, that five minutes just to talk about postmodernism. Hope no groans. But it's part of this trend. I just want to show you something. Postmodernism comes from a world of thought which says, look, those two traditions have failed. What's capitalism produced? Inequality, gross inequality, burning up the planet, polluting the planet. It's, 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 there's nothing in it anymore. Our young people have no future. What's communism there? Stalin killed 40 million people. Mao killed how many millions of people. Fascism. Unacceptable. Right? Those ideologies have failed. What are we going to do? A group of intellectuals got together in Frankfurt called the Frankfurt School and said look we've got to think of a new way Marxism has hasn't worked has as an economic reality. reality, it's failed workers are not rising up
1: against the uh,
0: establishment and they created what's called a cultural Marxism, we've, we've got, got to find the oppressed versus the oppressor if it's not going to be the workers against the, the owners, then it's going to be, well let's Who are the oppressed? Women. Homosexuals. People who want to change their gender. And so what they invented was critical theory where victims were now identified by race, disability, nationality, gender and orientation. Recognise this? Flooding the internet, flooding the media. It's a form of Marxism. It's a form of the spirit of the philosophers uh, of, of that school, Marx, Hegel, Kant, and so on. All those philosophers which develop that way of thinking, where reason is under the control of our feelings and the sense of what is the general will, which we then impose, becomes the norm. And... You know, one book, for example, by uh, Stephen Hicks explaining postmodernism. He says, From Rousseau to Foucault. Rousseau, the man I talked about in the French Revolution. Foucault, the high priest of postmodernism, dead now. AIDS. HIV AIDS. Right. One of the early victims. Victim? And you can read and headlines like this, how French intellectuals,
1: intellectuals ruled the
0: West, postmodernists, French intellectuals. They're French. They're French intellectuals. It's the same spirit that has developed into this postmodernism. Now, what let me just summarise. What, what is it about? How does it affect us? Well, we abandon reason. Abandon reason for subjective feeling there's no absolute truth out there there's the truth that we as it were create there's our truth right? it's not the individual that matters it's the group the group you belong to right group identity is what is important and that's what I mean. young people there's these things have gone into universities the professors have you know, accepted it, they're now teaching the teachers the teachers are out there in the schools and this is how these ideas are spreading bring the internet along whew, takes off like a fire right. and it affects religion and this is what I want you to, to think about so what's called the emergent church is the postmodern uh, philosophy applied to the bible and look what it says. Postmodernism can be thought of as a dissolution of cold hard facts in favour of warm, fuzzy subjectivity. It is about experience over reason, images over words, feelings over truth. That's what it is. These groups are marked by decentralized organization structure. Celebration of individual differences, beliefs, and morality. Reanalyzing the Bible against the cultural context. In other words, it's all now become relative. And I want to ask, has it affected the way we read the Bible? This is, I think these quotes are from um, an evangelical uh, Site which is uh, bringing its hands at the impact of postmodernism on the religious world, right? and particularly on the Bible. Postmodernism encourages to take the bits I like and apply them to myself, because that's what. Imp- how do you decide? Well, I like it. That's how I decide. But is there not a truth? Well, I like it. That's what I decide. We tend to edit out the parts that are tough to understand, or we may not like to hear. The text is for me to use for my own purpose. What matters is not the big picture of God's great dealings with his people, but my experience in the present. The application of every Bible talk should be something about me, or something for me to do. Rather than something about God that makes me stand in awe of Him. Do you recognize any of these trends, brother and sisters? Might they be having an effect? Might the spirits of the age be infecting our mindset? Are we being overly confident we have the truth? I heard that question been raised just about every place I've been in the world, and you get questions coming forward in a question and answer session, that question comes up from the young people. Where are they getting it from? Are we dumbing down doctrine? Shouldn't we have gender neutral ecclesias? Shouldn't we remove the differences, drop the word ecclesia, use the word church? Shouldn't we be addressing the social needs of the community? you think these ideas just come out of nowhere? They do not come out of nowhere. They are the manifestation of those unclean spirits affecting us. Aren't we being pharisaical and being holier than thou? Shouldn't we be more inclusive? God accepts us just as we are. Could trace these concepts back to the philosophies which gave birth to them. And most damaging of all, there is no true interpretation of the Bible. We ask, what does the Bible passage mean to me before we ask, what does the Bible passage mean? these are the forces that are active, ancestors, and we need. We need to recognize them, we need to, to prepare for them. And finally, this is my last slide, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. This is what we need to give ourselves to. We need to get back to the Bible, we need not to dumb it down, we need to get back to close reading of the Bible, we need to get back, not to images, we need to get back to the word itself, to understand the word in the context that the scripture gives us. That's what we need. You know, we sit down and we watch on Zoom and we let it all wash over us as if somehow that is edifying. It may be comforting, but for our younger people, that's not the way, is it? We need to get the Bibles open, we need to get the study tools open, we need to get back to proper, serious Bible study. And we should expect that of one another. We need to watch the signs of the times. And we need to develop the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, many of the things of modernism were terribly wrong, and there are many, many awful things about inequalities. Absolutely right. And it's only the Lord Jesus Christ is going to put them straight. That's for sure. And will we be there is the question. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning... Chosen you to salvation through sanctification of spirit. These unclean spirits are defiling of the mind. What we need is holy spirit, mind, through the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the scriptures. And, look what it says, verse 13, and belief of the truth. There is a truth greater than ourselves not created by the mind of man, but revealed from the God of heaven. This is the certain hope. Without it, we flounder in the sea of nations, driven, crashing upon the rocks, drowning in the eddies and currents of the world. But with this word of God, the living word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, we have that sure and certain hope that when we are called to the judgment seat of Christ, that by God's grace, our faith is counted for righteousness. We will be able to be part of that one Christ's body and bring righteousness and peace to this world.